And welcome back, men. If you've been following along on our champion series, this is the ninth week, and it'll actually comprise the last of the qualities that we've looked at. Uh, we began with an opening session in which we introduced the value of championship performance, what it is, what it isn't, and why it matters so much. And we're going to wrap up next week in the tenth part of this series with just a final overview, and in addition to an overview, uh, a few thoughts on what happens when some people actually don't care enough to commit them their lives to something big and bold and seemingly almost impossible. What happens when everyone settles for ordinary and commonplace? What happens when everyone settles for that's good enough and I just want to get on with my own life? And what I believe we're going to see next week is that if if the majority of humans take that position, and, and frankly I believe they do, then life ends up looking about like it does. But if everyone were to take that position, then most of humankind would not have advanced very far from the Dark Ages, or from the time when we first moved from being hunter-gatherers to an, ag an agrarian society that everything in life that we prize as being important to human thriving has in some way or another come about because of a handful of dedicated people in every generation who committed to do something big, something bold, something great. But just as importantly, and we're seeing this, we're seeing this played out so often today, that we not only need people who can develop technology, we not only need people who can lead businesses, my word, we need people who have answers and can help to lead families well, who can help to lead communities and schools. We need people that are willing to invest their lives in understanding how to help people live good, honest, decent, moral, ethical lives. In other words, we need people who can help others find what we'll call navigation points to make their way through life. In a world that we're, and I don't want to just go off the edge with complaints about the world, but what I do want us to see is that in a, in, in a society where, where we are struggling to find agreement on any set of right and wrongs, other than what feels right or feels wrong in the moment, that we desperately are in need of some people who can guide us through that that morass of difficulty that we're in. Well, today, our final quality, and, and what is that? We've looked at a number of qualities so far. We began with a, a passionate desire that every champion has some burning desire within him to do something great, to be something great. We moved on to the quality of self-awareness, who I am and who I'm not, where I am and where I'm not. What do I need to become in order to reach this big desired outcome? And what do I need to do to reach that? desired outcome. Those are the elements of self-awareness, which a, a champion is evaluating in his life on in an ongoing way. So the desire, we'll say, is fixed, or it's fixed in the mind of the champion so far as he understands it. It may morph a little bit as he moves along. The self-awareness, most definitely, as you move every phase through your journey from getting to where you are to where you want to be, you're going to discover new things that are needed that you don't have, you're going to discover defeating qualities that are already baked into your belief system and your mentality about how life works, and they've got to go. 
This is all part of the ongoing dynamic of a commitment to self-awareness. Next, we said that humility is one of these qualities. It's the ability to reach out and gain help from others. It's saying, I know that I'm not enough, but I'm also going to admit that I'm not enough because in doing that, it's the only way that I'm going to be able to openly seek the help that I need. From there, we move to the quality of determination. Determination is is the full-on commitment to move in the direction of the desired outcome, no matter how difficult it proves to be. If you've ever started a business, if you've ever started a ministry, frankly, if you've ever begun the process of in leading your family creatively, lovingly, in, in, in an inspired way, if you've ever even done that, you've probably found it's harder than you expected it to be. Almost everything that is of value that we seek to do is in the end going to prove much harder to pull off than what we'd first expected. And so why wouldn't we need determination? The next quality that we looked at was that of discipline slash self-discipline. The commitment to develop a specific and methodical set of plans for getting from where we are to that championship outcome that we so much desire, but then the ability to follow the plans that we've created. It's not enough to talk the talk. Literally, we have to walk the walk. We're all familiar with that phrase. You know why we're so familiar with it? Because there's so many people who talk the talk and don't walk the walk. That's exactly why we know the phrase so well, because we have to keep re-emphasizing that. Next, we talked about realism. Realism being the awareness that things will be difficult, that some things will take generations to accomplish, and believing that it, something will happen overnight or in, in a decade's time when it, it's likely to take 40 or 50 or 60 years to accomplish, that's setting ourselves up for a kind of bitter disappointment. Remember, when disappointment meets determination, the greater force is going to win. When disappointment meets determination, the greater force is going to win. The longer that I have been striving towards something and the greater the amounts of disappointment that I have accumulated along the way, the more likely it is that I'm going to become either disillusioned or bitter or frustrated or frankly want to go back to just resort to something easy. All right, so we move on from there. And uh, today's quality, the quality that seems like the softest and the squishiest of them all, is still, I believe, essential. And it's this. Every champion needs to have love. Uh, why? Incidentally, I, I, re I really need to go back. I forgot one of the qualities. I'm doing this sort of on the fly and without notes, and I'm doing it from memory. And so the last quality, I, well, I apologize for leaving out the one quality. The last quality is what I referred to as integrity, but I, I introduced it as the quality of wholeness. That everyone needs to have an undivided heart, a sold-out commitment to certain things, but it's more than that. It is also being sold out to the methodology, the value behind something. It is not being divided in, in my commitment to this versus that. It, wholeness of heart is the single thing that is going to push you over the edge in your determination. In other words, if there is no option but success, I mean, we're all familiar with that phrase from, the, I think it's the Apollo 13 mission, failure is not an option. Well, 
many pushed back on that and said, well, frankly, if certain things hadn't come about in a certain way, failure would have been a very likely, very probable option. But everyone understands what was meant by the phrase, and it, and it was, we simply can't fail. So long as time exists and resources exist up until the point where it is literally, genuinely, absolutely too late, we will try everything possible because we simply can't let this fail. We won't let this fail if it depends on us. All right. Now back to our quality for today, which is love. And to begin with, we have to ask the question, why do you want what you want? What is it that you want? We, we began the series, the first quality, intense desire. Why do you want what you want? Why do you believe that this thing is, is a good goal? Why do you think that this thing that you want, that you want to achieve and want to sustain and want to maintain over decades or even over generations, why is this worth the fight? It's not enough to have an intense desire unless you can answer why having this thing fulfilled is important. And, and what I would maintain for all of us is that if the reason that you or I want to be champions is simply for our own glory or our own benefit or so that people in future generations will have amazing stories to tell about us, that honestly, we know people who live that way, so I can't tell you that that isn't motive enough for some people. I just question whether whether it's even motive enough for you. And here's the way I'd like us to, to think of this. Anything that you do that is of great value is going to require great sacrifice. If it's easy, many people will do it. If it's hard, a few people will do it. If it is outstandingly difficult, nigh unto impossible, it is only a few people that will venture into that territory. You know what happens in that territory? People give up much of who they are in that territory. People let many things fall to the wayside in that territory. And so your love for something is a powerful driving motivation at, the, at those times when it's extremely difficult. And if the reason that you're doing it is for self-love, I want you to think about this. Remember what we just said, that every great thing is going to require sacrifice. It's going to require sacrifice of you. So if your glory is the thing that you're working for, it means you will sacrifice your life to get your glory. So I ask you this, is that a good trade-off? Is it a good trade-off? Is it actually a sensible trade-off to change out or exchange a significant portion of your life and the other things that you could do simply to achieve something that is primarily about yours or another's just reputation or glory or accolades? And certainly we see in athletics and in, and in the entertainment industry that that appears to be true for some people. I, I certainly wouldn't paint with such a broad brush as to say that's true for all people, perhaps not even true for most entertainers, that they believe that they're doing something much larger, much more important than merely making a name for themselves. But what I want us to understand as we move into this final topic of love is that you will give a significant portion of your life to do something great. And if you are willing to exchange your life for something, that's something that you give up your life for, 
had better be valuable enough that it was worth the sacrifice of your life. I want to point us to a couple of verses here that illustrate something that I think is best summed up with the verses, and then we'll come back and I'll make a position statement about it. Here's some words from Jesus. The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life, i.e. sacrifice, only to take it back up again. Now listen to this next part. No one takes it from me, meaning his life, but I lay it down of my own accord. In other words, voluntary, voluntary sacrifice. I have the authority to lay it down and also the authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. So in a nutshell, Jesus says that God the Father has given Jesus the authority, the permission, the sphere of influence in which he can choose to lay down his life when it is the right time, but he also has the power to take it back up again. In other words, the sacrifice is not without gain. The sacrifice helps others out of his love for them, but also he experiences renewal. Here are some words from a writer in Hebrews. And let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. In other words, Jesus is both our model and our mentor and the perfect example of what he's asking us to do. And what's he asking us to do? Well, look at what Jesus does. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. What was the cross? His sacrifice. Scorning its shame, and then, and this is the highlight part of the reel, and then set down at the right hand of the throne of God. This ties right back into the verse that we just read. The two are placed together. Jesus, given the authority by God, lays down his life. God is able to raise his life back up for him and give him the position of honor after the sacrifice. The sacrifice comes first. The honor comes next, but in both cases, these are pointing to God the Father as being the one that this was done in the name of and done for. Here's my premise. Every one of us who is a parent or a leader at work or a leader in some volunteer organization, every one of us has experienced what I'm going to describe next. You give your level best for another human being. You invest in them. You give money toward them, you give much of your time, time incidentally that you probably could have done many other things with, and it really was a sacrifice, and yet those people in the end disappoint you. That sacrifice appears as if it bears no fruit, because the people that you have sacrificed for not only don't appreciate it, but the ultimate goals that you would hope that they would achieve, maybe getting a life back on track, maybe maybe a renewal of a relationship with a son or a daughter or a wife or a husband if, it, if the roles are reversed. That's what the sacrifice was made for, and yet the sacrifice seems unrewarded. We've all experienced that. Here is what I believe is described in these verses. That when we, within our sphere of influence, that thing that we wish to perform as champions at, and to gain victory for when we perform passionately in that sphere of influence and dedicate that performance to God, then it is in God's hands 
to deliver us and to raise us back up. If I invest my sacrifice in anything less than God, then if I am disappointed, I have lost not only everything that I have poured into that, but I have lost literally a large portion, if not all of my life, never to get that back again. Now, admittedly, that's why it's called sacrifice. But the beauty, I believe, of what's described in the Christian faith, described in a number of verses. Here's another one from the early part of Hebrews. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature, upholding all things by his powerful word. And after he had provided, that's Jesus, after he had provided purifications for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. In other words, through God's power, Jesus has given the opportunity to see his sacrifice bear fruit and his life is redeemed. Isn't that what we want? We want to go to battle. We want to fight the fight. We, we honestly, many of us as men, we relish the risk. We relish the challenge. We even sometimes delight in the injury and the wounding. We call them battle scars and we take pride in them. And we want that. But in the end, we don't want our life to be snuffed out like a candle in a, in a, on a windy day. And everything that we've done is gone. And the lights go out in our life. And that's the end of it. And so what I'm suggesting to you is that love for God, demonstrated as love toward people, if it is within the sphere of influence that God has called us to, and there's a number of caveats there, you can probably think of some, where, where even the scriptures remind us that there are people who will stand before God at the last day and say, well, I did all this stuff in your name, and God will say, no, you didn't, I never told you to do that. So I'm talking about things that we have done in the name of God for his glory and his benefit. If the thing that we loved most was to honor God, and then only secondarily sought to love and care for those people, that love will be rewarded in the end. But anything short of that, if we have sought to love people first and God second, or love ourselves first, I believe that those are investments that we may not see a good outcome from. I'd like you to pause, or we're going to pause there. I'd like you to think about if that's been true of some of your pursuits in the past, I know it's certainly been true of some of mine. It's not as if I've never worked any days of my life for my own glory. It's not as if I've never put people first and God second, or things first and God second, or God even a distant third. So I'm not talking to you in a way that I don't need to talk to myself. When we come back, we're going to look at a couple of lives that really illustrate this well. I'll see you on the other side of this break. Take some time to think about this. Okay, and we're back, and the next thing that I'd like us to think about together is something that I have personally evaluated. I've experienced this in my own life. I have experienced it much to my personal regret in my own life, and that is I have at times, and perhaps you have as well, built a big life around small things. That is, I have allowed small goals to consume massive amounts of my time. Something that I've become aware of uh, in a business sense, 
and have been more acutely aware of in, in more recent years is this. That a man or a woman or a team of people can invest massive amounts of time and energy in either a small goal or a big goal, in either creating a small business or creating a large business. And that depending on the nature of the investment and the product and, and the overall scope and vision for the business, it is possible to invest your life in something small or to invest your life in something large. And the same amount of time, of energy, of financial capital and emotional capital can go into the development of something that is of small consequence or it can go into something that is of great consequence. And so early on, I think it's helpful if we set our sights as high as possible so that later on in life we don't look back and say, I settled for something too small. I settled for being great at something small. Rather than taking a larger risk, knowing that I might have failed, but setting my sights on something much larger with the full awareness that I might lose. Because what I've come to discover is this, you will invest the same amount of your life if you are a championship-oriented person, one who commits thoroughly to whatever endeavor you do, you will invest the same amount of money in, hypothetically speaking here, creating a business that operates out of your basement as you might in creating a business that operates out of 10 floors in a center city high-rise. Think big unless you have reason to believe that God has called you not to think big. But apart from that, think big. I'd like to introduce the first person that we're going to talk about this morning. And it's actually a pair of people. It's two brothers. It's two brim, twin brothers, actually. It's Jacob and Esau. Now, the first question I'd like you to think about is this. When you hear the two words, the God of... That's three words, but when you hear these two names, the God of Abram and Isaac and, and there's a blank there now, what name comes to mind? Well, if you're most people, it's Jacob. Now, here's the bigger question, or the question that I want us to think about. Why isn't it the God of Abram and Isaac and Esau? Why is it the God of Abram and Isaac and Jacob? And perhaps you've never thought about that, but if you know the story, you actually know the answer to that question. And the answer is this, that at a critical moment in his life, Esau sold away the opportunity for greatness because greatness looked like difficulty and challenge and something that he'd rather not entertain. So when you have some time, I'd like you to Get a Bible, get a hold of a Bible or your Bible app on your phone, and I'd like you to read the story of Jacob and Esau beginning in Genesis, the 25th chapter. It's about midway through the chapter that the story starts. And we're first introduced to Isaac as a prospective parent, realizing that Rebekah is not going to have any children, and pleading with God on behalf of Rebekah that Rebekah would conceive and have some children. And shortly after that, Rebecca becomes pregnant, and she's pregnant with twins. Twins that will later be named Jacob and Esau. And not much is known about the young boys, 
although they seem to have a significant rivalry, the next time we meet them, both of them appear to be younger men. It describes Jacob as a guy who likes to hang around the tents. In other words, he's sort of a homebody. And Esau is more of a wilderness-oriented guy. He likes to go out in the fields. If there's any woodland there, he probably would have gone out there. He likes to hunt. He may have been out for hours, day, days even at a time, out, out in the wilderness area. He thrives in that. Jacob, on the other hand, thrives in, in, in the home setting, closer to the servants and his mother and all of that. And it says, one day Esau comes back from a hunting trip and he's famished. And he pleads with Jacob, who has some stew that he's cooking there, and he pleads with Jacob, can I have a bowl of your stew? Jacob, whose name essentially means trickster, says to Esau this, what I'd like you to do is to exchange your birthright with me, and I'll gladly give you a bowl of stew. Now, to understand this, the birthright goes to the elder or the oldest son. There are at this point only two sons. Uh, Jacob and Esau, as we would say, broke the womb of Rebekah. In other words, they are the eldest sons, and Esau is the older of the eldest sons. So Esau had the birthright. What is the birthright? And th this is critical to understanding this. The birthright position as the eldest son meant that Esau was likely entitled to about double the inheritance of any other child. After Isaac passed, Esau would get about twice as much. But with that comes two significant responsibilities. He becomes what we'd call the patriarchal head of this clan or this tribe. In other words, his will be the responsibility to guide and care for the rest of the family after Isaac is no longer there. In other words, with the, the added wealth comes added responsibility. But not only that, there's a final thing. Esau, as the, as the leader, would also be the spiritual leader or the spiritual priest of his clan. So with the added wealth comes two things. The responsibility of day-to-day -day leadership, the care of the clan, the care and survival, the looking out for how they're going to take care of things. Now, what we read about in, in the chapter after this, chapter 25, is both Jacob and Esau undoubtedly being exposed to the struggles and the travails of what it meant to lead a small business that was a shepherding type business. What it meant to lead that and care for the household that Isaac had to care for, meaning the servants, the shepherds, the domestic help, the the wife, the children, the, all of that. What it meant to make sure that they could all eat and and live, be protected, not, not be slaughtered by hostiles or whatever. And undoubtedly, Esau at this time is living a reasonably carefree life. We could be relatively certain that he had family responsibilities. He had chores to do. He had work to do. Maybe he cared for the sheep. Maybe he did some other things. He probably did a number of things, but he also had a good life the way he saw it. He had time to, to ramble and, and, and pursue his love of the outdoors. And he didn't have the weight of leadership hanging over his head. And, and his words to Jacob were, are sort of well, they instruct us a little bit. He said, what good would it be to have this birthright 
if I die of hunger in the meantime? Well, clearly there's a little bit of exaggeration there, but at the time we can very evidently see Esau isn't taking this future responsibility that is likely to be his too seriously. But make no mistake about it, Jacob is taking it very seriously because Jacob says to Esau, I want you to swear to me. I know you've said that, but I want you to, on oath, promise me beyond question that this will be true, that you will turn over your birthright to me. This is the most preposterous exchange of wealth that we can imagine. Double the inheritance of what would become a relatively prosperous shepherd, double the inheritance, plus the leadership of the clan, and Esau trades that away for a single evening's meal. And very few of us would take that bet. But just as important, I want you to notice something else. Jacob, who has no other way of getting this, seems to be so committed to that, committed to the wealth, committed to the opportunity to lead. We'd have to question why that's so. Committed to the opportunity to be the family priest. He seems so dedicated to that that he presses in on Esau and says, no, you swear this to me right now. Now, here's the irony of it. Based on what we've seen of Esau and seen of Jacob to this point, if you had to pick one or the other, most of us would probably pick Esau to be the leader. He would be a better protector. He would know more about the terrain of the land where they would shepherd and, and manage their flocks. He would be the one, as a hunter, who would be more equipped to defend the clan at a time of hostility. Jacob, on the other hand, is a homebody. He might make a better domestic leader, but we don't even know that. Yet Esau thinks so lightly, not only of the opportunity, but also of his own skills. Jacob, on the other hand, is a conniving trickster. He is, if you will, the last person you want to be leading your family. Because remember, he's a family leader and a spiritual guide. Well, what kind of a spiritual guide is a trickster and a con man? He's a very bad one. This, this is a warning to both of us. And remember, I, I, I introduced this story by saying that Rebecca was, uh, the, term, the biblical term that's often used is barren. In other words, she couldn't conceive children. She, she, she was a potential mom without any kids, and, and it was heartbreaking. And so Isaac intervenes and prays for her. In other words, it is at the hand of God that both Jacob and Esau are born. And yet it seems that neither of them has the right motive or the right commitment to what's one day going to be theirs. How is it that children conceived by God can fall so far outside of what is their realm of responsibility and what God intends to bless them with? But the story culminates years later. The story culminates, as we know, when two older sons now are seeking the final blessing of their aging father, who is at this point reasonably well blind and is somewhat infirm and, and is lying in bed there. We don't know that he's necessarily incapacitated, but it, the scripture says clearly that he can't see well. He can't see well, which means he can be tricked visually, which he is. And so Isaac says to Esau, listen, I'd like to pass my blessing on to you now. In Isaac's mind, the birthright is still Esau's. In Isaac's mind, this blessing will fulfill 
the second part of the birthright. So the birthright gives the opportunity for leadership. The blessing seals the deal by empowering the person being blessed with God's authority and God's empowerment to follow through on this. And so what Isaac is saying is, in my mind, you will be the leader of this clan, but the position alone is not enough. It will take the blessing coming through me, being the agent of God, pouring that blessing out in your life that's going to make this a practical reality in your life. And it says that Rebecca is listening in on this. She hears this. And because Jacob is her favorite son, Rebecca steps into this process and says to Jacob, we're going to do something to trick your father so that you get the blessing. And Rebecca undoubtedly already knows this private covenant that's taken place between Jacob and Esau, where Esau has signed off his birthright in exchange for one night's worth of food. And so in the end, Jacob tricks his father and gets the blessing which will empower him to act out on the birthright. And, and Esau, at this point, is heartsick. When he finds this out, he feels thoroughly betrayed. So here's what I want us to see. At, the, at this intersection where Esau has first signed off on his opportunity to be the third patriarch mentioned in that trilogy, Abram, Isaac, and could have been Esau, but now it's Jacob. And then the person who steps into that leadership role is a trickster and a fraud whom God will have to confront and refine. Now, why does Esau do that? Why does Esau walk away from what should have been his birthright and his privilege to lead? Because he loved the life that he was living and he was nowhere near as concerned with the responsibility that God had wanted to anoint him with than he was with enjoying his life and enjoying his freedom and living the sort of semi-carefree life that he had to live. Now, I know a lot of men that are just like that. They love their hobbies. They love their activities. They probably, many of them even love their work. They love a lot of things that bring pleasure and enjoyment to their life in the moment. But they've never quite asked seriously this single question. What is it that God has put me here to do? And if they don't have an answer to that, an immediate answer, and, and most men don't have an immediate answer to that, they've never gone out looking for it because life is working for them on their terms right now and they don't want to mess with the good and fun and enjoyable life that they have because finding out whatever God would want them to do in life and actually starting to do that would cut off some of the fun and the joy that they believe they're experiencing. But here's what I can tell you. And here's what scripture records about Esau. Esau is bitter and heartbroken and angry. And scripture records that at the, shortly after that event, that Rebecca senses that Jacob's life is literally in danger because Esau is going to plot and plan to kill him as soon as Isaac has passed on. And so Rebecca says to Jacob, you better leave and concocts a story that helps Jacob to, to excuse himself from Isaac's presence and go off to a foreign land to escape Esau's hostility. Now Esau gets over it. Esau moves on with his life. Esau 
becomes the head of a separate country. Esau becomes the leader of his clan in his own right. Why? Because on his own, he was a capable leader. He was skilled. It's not as if he didn't know how to make money. It's not as if he didn't know how to protect people. It's not as if he didn't know how to lead. But he was passed over as having an opportunity to be part of significant Jewish history, literally part of the plan of God to bring about the Messiah, Jesus Christ. He was passed over for that because he, I believe he preferred his freedom and his pleasure over the responsibility that could and should have been his. Here's my question to us all. In what way have we chosen or favored our own freedoms and pleasures over what God has perhaps asked from us because we're afraid if we say yes to God, it's just going to screw up our life big time. Now, I'd like you to just, we're going to pause right now. Take some time to think about that, please. Okay, and we're back for one final accounting of a scriptural story. It's another one that most of us are familiar with. I'm going to try to tell it a little bit more quickly, but I want you to be looking for the same sort of a pattern. A man who's given an opportunity to step into a sphere of influence that God wants to carve out for him, that sphere of authority that we've talked about before, uh, just exactly the way that Jesus describes it when he says that God has given him authority in this area, and, and Jesus is now going to act on that authority, both to, both to lay down his life and then to have his life restored. This is the story of another man who is given the opportunity to have influence and power over people for their good, for the love of people. And that's the same story that we saw with Jacob and Esau. Esau loved himself more than he loved his family. And that's the conclusion that helps us to understand this and sets us up for the next story. And the next man whose life we're going to look at is Samson. And interestingly enough, Samson's life begins in approximately the same way as that of Jacob and Esau. And by that I mean that Samson's mother was, again using the biblical phrase, barren, without a child. And so it is Samson's father who prays to God, and he says, God, my wife, she would love a child, she's not having a child. And again, this time in a more miraculous and more profound way, it says the angel of God literally shows up to Samson's wife and says, you will have a child. He's going to be a special kind of child. He's going to be such a special child that you're going to have to set apart your particular freedoms for a while. For the time that you are, are carrying this child, you're going to have to give up anything to do with, with wine or grapes or anything. And I realize today we might say, well, that seems like a common sense thing anyway. But there are a number of other things that she would have to give up because... Samson would be what Jewish people referred to as a Nazarite. And a Nazarite was a person who for either a little time or a long time, or in Samson's case, a lifetime, dedicated themselves to God in a very specific and outwardly expressive way through avoiding certain foods, through avoiding any kind of alcohol, through avoiding even grapes, even staying clear of all that kind of stuff, and, and then as well, the more familiar one that we all know, not cutting his hair, all part of the Nazarite vow. And so 
Samson's mom conceives. Later on, she gives birth. And exactly as with the two boys, we don't learn much about Samson growing up. And we meet Samson, the adult young man, who obviously is starting to be in possession of his great strength. And he takes a fancy to a cute young girl who is one of the Philistines. Now keep in mind that the Philistines are Israel's enemies. And the scripture introduces the story of Samson. It's important to know this small detail. The scripture introduces the story of Samson by saying that at the time of Samson's birth, the people that were God's people had been oppressed by the surrounding people for 40 years. Now if you think back to where you were 40 years ago, some of you weren't even born. I don't care if you were born 60 or 70 years ago, you'd have to admit 40 years is a long time. Most of us would struggle to remember what we were doing 40 years ago. Well, that's exactly how long that God's people had in the, in the, the description of, of this story. That's how long they've been oppressed. So what does oppression mean? In this sense, it means that raiding bands would perhaps come in and steal the grain just as it was ripening. They'd steal the wine and they'd steal the good things. They might take livestock. They might force the people of God's people to do labor for them for free. There's a number of ways in which they could be oppressed, but here's the thing. They always lived in fear that anything they had could immediately be taken, even their lives. That's what it meant to be oppressed. And so we see Samson, who is going to be, and this is the way God describes it, where he will begin to deliver the people of God from their enemies. Who does the adult man, Samson, choose as a helper for life, a mate for life, a bedmate for life? He chooses a girl who is of the enemy merely because of her beauty. And, and who among us, as men, hasn't been tempted to do something along those lines? To look at superficial beauty and not look at issues of the heart. To look at the things that we want rather than trust the counsel and the wisdom of God. And I wanted to introduce something more here. Because by this point in time, God's people were a covenant people. The commandments had been given. The, not just the Ten Commandments, but the entire code of the law by which they were to live and part of the code of the law by which they were to live was a piece of counsel that said do not marry women of foreign nations because their allegiance to their gods will pull you away from your allegiance to me now samson who is to be the emissary the representative of god his very first act as an adult man is to go seek out a mate who is of the enemy. Now you would think, I would think, anyone would think, if we were watching this movie, if we were watching it play out, it would almost be a predictable part where we would say, are you a fool? Don't do that. Now, I, I just have to pause from this, telling the story and ask us all a question. Have we never played the fool in our own lives before? Because lust got the best of us? Because a passionate desire got the best of us? Now, maybe it was a physical lust as in for another human being. Maybe it was a lust for money. Maybe it was a lust for power or position. Has lust ever gotten the best of you? Because 
I'm pretty sure it's gotten the best of me on a few occasions. And this is the story of Samson. And, and remember our theme for the morning, the final attribute of a champion. I suggested that the final attribute of a champion, without which you cannot really be a champion, is love. And lust and love are actually opposites. Lust wants from other people to fulfill me. Love wants from me to bless and benefit other people. So they're actually opposites and contradictory to each other. Samson fell prey to his own lusts. And the story unravels from there. Because in the process of trying to protect his own reputation and his own pride from certain things, he goes about making enemies of the Philistines needlessly and sets them up for conflict with the people of God. And Samson's concern at that time is more for his own reputation than it is for his people. Samson, who is to be the leader of his people, who is to be the deliverer at this time from an oppressing people that are occupying their country, instead shortchanges his role, his opportunity, his position. And he shortchanges it because Samson loved himself more than he loved God, who had given, literally given him life. And Samson loves himself more than he loves the people whom he's been tasked with liberating. Now, I don't have time to tell the rest of the story. You can find that story. I believe it's in the book of Judges. It starts around the 13th chapter. It does. It is the 13th through the 16th chapters. You can read the story for yourself. Two stories. A pair of brothers and another man. Both who had the opportunity to love God well, to love God rightly, to love God in such a way that they could trust God for their own fulfillment while they acted out God's plan for their lives on behalf of other people and two men who rejected the best for their lives and paid the price for it, one literally with his life in the form of Samson and the other with being left out of what should have been his rightful role in the family of the Messiah that God would bring to us. Now I want to ask you, as we wrap this up, what kind of regrets can we avoid if we evaluate these stories closely and we say, I'm not going to be one of those people. And we know that as men we're, we're drawn to doing these same stupid things or these same, well, let's not call them stupid, let's call them short-sighted but understandable things. It takes a higher degree of love and devotion to God to snap us out of and snap us away from those things that would cause us to settle for a small and self-oriented dream instead of a large and God-oriented dream. And I'm going to leave us with that thought right now. Please take some time to think about that this week and ask yourself, is there something that you've been settling for other than God's best for your life? And guys, I'll see you again here next week with a wrap-up on this champion series.